our first song together. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's sing and worship our, our Savior this evening. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is love, love.
Dear Jesus, as we just sang, there's nothing that we can do. There's no righteousness or good enough acts of, of kindness we can do or buy our way into heaven other than just trust and put our hope and our faith in you. So, Father, as remember your sacrifice that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. I just pray, Lord, that uh, just if we're not feeling worthy, if we're not feeling loved, Lord, I just pray that we're reminded that we have a God and we have a Savior who loves us so much that he died for us. And in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Reading from the Gospel of Luke, and if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1,256. It's a little low light, so maybe you can't read uh, that, but... um, I'll give you a second to find your way there if you're looking. Uh, Let me also just take a moment and just ask if you would just be sure your phone is silenced so we don't have any unnecessary interruptions uh, later in our service. Also, um, tonight, after I read this portion of Luke's account of Christ's crucifixion, um, we're going to have each one of our elders will be coming and sharing Uh, a brief meditation, so don't feel like it's going to be the length of my normal messages times three. Um, They were encouraged to have a meditation and to take different, uh, what what does the cross of Christ demonstrate to us about God? And so that's sort of the theme that they're going to be exploring. I'd like to begin reading now in verse 33 of the 23rd chapter of Luke. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, or the Messiah of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit 
my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. Good evening. Have you ever heard of the Daisy Oracle? I haven't either until recently. Well, I've never heard it called by that name anyway, but I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Usually performed by adolescent boys and girls who are attracted to another person, they pluck the petals of a flower, usually a daisy, alternating the phrases, he loves me, he loves me not, or she loves me, she loves me not, with each petal that is plucked. This continues until the last petal remains, revealing if that person shares those feelings. It is quite a sophisticated technique to determine someone's love for you, but I would venture it's not too reliable. Um, unfortunately, many times, that is how we can approach God's love for us as Christians. I got promoted at work today. He loves me. Business is slow and I got laid off. He loves me not. I'm cancer-free for five years. He loves me. An x-ray just revealed a spot in my lungs. He loves me not. I'm getting married. He loves me. I'm still single. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Do you sometimes feel this way about God's love for you? We may not say that, but sometimes we could live this way, and Satan would love nothing more than to create doubt about God's love for us. It creates a weak, powerless Christian living in an uncertain about how God feels for us. But I'm happy to say we do not have to live like that. We can know that God loves us with certainty. How? By looking at God's word. Many, if not all of you, uh, many, if not all of you know what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So many times we could become so familiar with a verse that we take for granted that we know what it means and what it says. So let us briefly meditate on the implications of this verse. For our lives. God has gone through great pains to demonstrate his love for us. He did not simply say he loves us, but he went the distance to show it. Let's start by looking at who this verse is speaking of. God so loves the world. In short, this means the whole world system. It means Jews as well as Gentiles. It means those who have sinned and rebelled against God. It means you. It means me. After many people watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ, they often remarked, why would God have allowed this to happen? And if God's love was based on worldly standards, that would be a very valid question. But God does not love us for what we do. He loves us because he loves us. So we see the motivation of the cross is pure, unconditional love, a love that sacrifices God's most precious thing, his son. When it comes to God and his attributes, there are some things we can get a sense of, a hint or a shadow. But we cannot fully understand God his love is one of those things that we do not have a category for, and we learn only after we receive a new heart and after many years of meditating on and studying God's word 
and its glorious truth of the gospel. We do not naturally love in the same way God loves. Let me explain. When I met my wife in college, I immediately found her attractive. I liked the way she looked, and I enjoyed talking to her and the things she did. I liked the way I felt when I was with her, so I wanted to be around her more and more. I almost immediately felt that I loved her. Um, you see, I loved her because of who she was and how she acted. In a very real sense, you could say that she had earned my love. But for love to flourish and remain consistent, we need to grow past that and begin to catch a glimpse of the love God has for us. Unlike God's love, my love did not originate from me. It was drawn out, so to speak, from my wife. Thankfully, God is not like us. Let us look at his chosen people from the Old Testament. God chose Israel not because of them, but in spite of them. Not because they were great in number or because they were fiercely loyal or because they were mighty warriors. No, he chose them despite the fact that there were none of these. Just like God chose us, not because we are stronger, prettier, wiser, more spiritual, or pure. No, he loves us simply because he loves us. And by God's grace, we can learn to love like him. Only since becoming a Christian and learning how God loves us have I been able to truly learn how to love my wife. And of course, and she will testify to this, I have not perfected it yet. Now, many who teach or preach John 3.16 focus on the quantity of God's love. How much did God love the world, they ask? He so loved the world. But this word so is not the focus. We need to focus on the quality of the love or the nature of the love. You see, the word so in this passage really carries the meaning in this way. So it could really be read, for God loved the world in this way, or this is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. It's not about God loving such a big world. Rather, this is about a God that is so holy, loving a world that is so sinful. Not a love that stretches so wide, but a love that stoops so low. We did not earn or even deserve this love. In fact, we have rebelled against God. In no way have we become lovable. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But praise God that as Paul proclaims in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. This, my friends, is the most sublime truth in the world. This is so freeing. We need not be spiritually insecure. We do not perform to be loved. We are loved to such a degree as demonstrated by the cross that we want to perform. And sometimes, actually all of the time, we need to be reminded of this. You see, if your confidence in God's love for you is dependent upon your ability to make him love you, you will live a fearful, restless, weak Christian life. Again, how do we truly know God loves us? In the Gospel of John, I love you is not something God actually says, but something he demonstrates. As we said, the incalculability of God's love is not found in the word so, but in the gift that he gave. Most of us know the story in the 22nd chapter of Genesis where we see God testing Abraham's devotion. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, so Abraham puts the wood for the offering on Isaac's back and grabs his knife and off they go. His son Isaac then asks his father, where is the lamb for sacrifice? Abraham responds, God will provide the lamb. As everything was set and Abraham was about to slay his son, the angel of the Lord stopped him. And behold, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket 
which Abraham then sacrificed instead. Abraham rightfully named that place, the Lord will provide, because God has provided a substitute. Well, 2,000 years later, a man with wood bound to his back ascends the very same hill. He too was fastened to the altar of sacrifice in the form of a cross. Only this time there was no angel to stop it. God had actually sacrificed his son. There was no substitute because he was the substitute. What was foreshadowed so many years ago had been finally and fully provided by God. He did not only send his son, but surrendered and sacrificed him for us. Why? Because he truly loves us. If we measure the value of God's love by the value of his gift, his love could not be greater. He gave us what was most dear to him. He loves me. He loves me not. Let us stop questioning God's love for us. Let us no longer insult him by questioning him in light of his fantastic demonstration of love. St. Augustine has said, The cross is a pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. He did this so that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. So whether we perish or have everlasting life turns on one thing, your response to Jesus Christ. Let us look in faith on Jesus Christ, whoever you are, wherever you are from, and whatever your past Believe on Jesus Christ, and you do not need to live by the daisy oracle any longer. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Those who believe that Christ was born a man, lived a perfect life in our place, was sacrificed, paying the penalty for our sin that we deserve, and was crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day, can now live by the gospel oracle. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that although we may face many trials in life, we do not have to guess about your love for us. We can know for sure because of your amazing demonstration of love on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. So I wasn't going to preface this next song, um, but a few months ago I really just found myself in like the the valley of the shadow of death. And if you're someone who's gone to church, that's a term that we use. That's just, things aren't going well. Um, you know, I was really just struggling. I wasn't praying as much as I should have. I wasn't reading as much as I should have. I had some feelings of resentment and bitterness. And uh, I just kind of came to the conclusion that I wasn't really focusing on God. Um, well, obviously, but I wasn't really looking at what the cross meant. Um, so I ended up actually writing this song and for me, it's been, um, it's, it, I'm excited to share it, but it's something that for me, it's just a simple, you know, thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross, for me and for you. So, enjoy. Heaven's light shining through the darkness. 
sinners made righteous, your name is matchless. Thank you for the cross. No other love has known this cost. He bled and died for me. The empty tomb, his victory. Perfect love hanging on a tree. Obedient to death, so all may see. Sin has no power, Jesus is greater. And thank you for the cross. No other love has known this cost. He bled and died for me the empty tomb his victory and oh your sacrifice he paid my debt It is, uh, 
It is indeed a, a magnificent, infinite, merciful grace of God in Christ. As we, as we go through this, as we celebrate this, uh, you know, for the last uh, week, I've been, I've been just uh, pounding and pounding and pounding in the, uh, in the reality of the love of God in Christ. It's something, it's something that we take it for granted. It's something that we kind of, uh, we have it over here, but it, it really, really have not dropped down deep into our hearts. I tell you, uh, this is, uh, praise the Lord, that we can be together here, uh, reading and studying this, uh, the reality of God's love just poured out for us in Christ. This is as uh, this is uh, this is uh, this this evil demonic uh, anger in our heart as we see upon these spiritual leaders, the rulers, the soldiers, everyone in there. I mean, this uh, this did not happen in that particular time. You have to go back to Genesis three. When the devil himself put this anger, put this venom of hatred toward God. And remember, when, when sin entered into the human heart, when, uh, when the devil tempted Eve, And then Adam just follow. When the when the Lord confronted Adam, he became arrogant. He became blaming God for the situation now. And now we see. Then we see the consequence, Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, the, the first murder, a brother killed his brother. And it was Genesis chapter uh, 6 and 8 and 11 it, through the whole scripture. It's just, it just, it just the reality of the hatred of men to God. And we see here uh, this uh, this this tremendous the tremendous uh, love uh, demonstrated even as uh, the crucifixion was not only to inflict in the intense physical pain, but also to impose as much public humiliation as possible. And even, even through this cruel and abusive treatment, God, Christ himself, prayed for his enemy. 
what a, what a manifestation of a compassionate grace. Even, uh, even those who draw the nurse through his hands and feet were the objects of his, of his love and forgiving mercy. Nowhere in history do we see such a clear capacity of evil and rebellious in the heart of man toward God himself. At the same time, at the same time, the magnificent, the, the magnitude of the self-sacrificing love of God in Christ is something that we take for granted. It's something that we, we this, is, this, is like, uh, this is like every day, but we don't realize that love that God has demonstrated in Christ uh, is, uh, let me just uh, close, uh, is, uh, oh, just one verse over here. It says, he came to his, he came, he came to his, uh, to his own and his own, he said, and his own did not receive him, but as many as, re, as received him, to them he gave, he, uh, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. If you, if you are here without Christ, think about it. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of Christ. So it's something not only for us that we we should we should appreciate, we we should uh, we should come to the reality of the magnificent, the magnitude of God's love in Christ. Yeah, let's pray dear Lord Father Lord we we pray Father Lord that these words that you you have spoken May, uh, may you help me to hear my own words, dear Lord Father. May you help me to, to understand even, even, even more, dear Lord, of your, of your magnificent, infinite, merciful grace that you have given us in Christ, Father. Lord. May, you, may, uh, may the light of Christ will be shine out of it, Father, through the love into every soul that grows our past, dear Lord, Father, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. Thank you, Robert. At this time, I'll invite everyone to stand and, uh, and worship with us. So let's sing, and, uh, let's sing together, Jesus, thank you.
So we've heard of the, how the love of God was demonstrated at the cross and the mercy and the grace of God was demonstrated at the cross. I want to talk tonight about how the revival from God is demonstrated at the cross. Of course, when we think about revival, it's natural to think about the resurrection. After all, the resurrection is the ultimate demonstration of the reviving power of God. But you don't have to wait until Resurrection Sunday to see God's plan and God's power to bring revival to the world. Even as we commemorate Jesus' death tonight, our hearts and our minds ought to be fixed firmly on revival, on new life. In the circumstances immediately surrounding the cross, even as Jesus was dying, there were certainly extraordinary signs that God was at work bringing revival. There was the awakening of the centurion, the one who testified that Jesus truly was the Son of God. There was the rebirth of the thief, the one who said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And we know from Jesus' response, today you shall be with me in paradise, that he was assured, and we can be assured, that this criminal was truly revived. He was truly born again, even from the dead on that cross. And then there was the earthquake and the splitting of rocks and the tombs that were opened and the many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep that were raised to life, as Matthew reports. God demonstrated there his resurrecting power, even at the very moment that Jesus cried out and cried out his last and gave up his spirit. So you don't have to wait until Resurrection Sunday to see God's plan and his power to bring about revival. Well, let's turn back the, the calendar even a little further. I wanted to go back to the Monday, the Monday before Good Friday. That day, as Mark records for us in Mark 11, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. What's going on here? Why did Jesus do this? Well, Mark tells us, Mark continues, that Jesus began to teach them and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you have made it a robber's den. Key phrase here is he began to teach. Jesus had come that day to teach in the temple and is driving the people out and overturning tables and chairs and blockading the flow of goods was all part of his teaching. But what was he teaching? Tonight, let's look, I want to take a look at the big picture here. Jesus, what Jesus is teaching about revival. It's a teaching about revival that he came to bring that day. And as I uh, thought about this, there were three th themes that emerged. First, that Jesus is on a mission to purify a priesthood to worship God. Second, that purifying that priesthood would require God's reviving power. And third, that bringing God's reviving power to the people would require Jesus laying down his life. So first, Jesus. Jesus is on a mission to purify a priesthood to worship God. Jesus clearing the temple is a fulfillment of prophecy. If, we, if you look into uh, Malachi 3, I want to say Malachi, I'm sorry. It's the, the great Italian prophet, <clears throat> Malachi. Malachi, the, the prophecy found in Malachi 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, 
and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's Malachi 3, 1. This is one of those places in the Old Testament where the messenger, or in Hebrew it also could be translated angel, seems to be one and the same as the Lord himself. Jesus, who is at once God himself and God's messenger, is the only one who can fill, uh, fill this role. In purifying the temple, Jesus is identifying himself as that promised messenger and as God himself. But what has the Lord come suddenly to his temple to do? Malachi goes on. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Like the fire in the refining process separates impurities from silver, Malachi says, like soap in the laundry carries impurities away, so Jesus came into the temple to remove impurity. And only once the impurity was removed, when the priests were pure, could they worship God in righteousness. This is why Jesus drove the buyers and sellers out why he overturned the tables and the chairs. He was illustrating that he came to fulfill this prophecy, that God had come to purify the priesthood, to worship God. And as Jesus did so, he proclaimed, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you have made it a robber's den. Here Jesus is quoting two other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. The connection to Isaiah is to Isaiah 56, where Isaiah foretells of a time when God will gather to his household, not just Israel, people from Israel, but people from other nations, all those who hold fast to his covenant, Isaiah says. And in quoting Isaiah, Jesus is connecting his purification of the temple with an opening of the way to his Father, to all peoples. This is a wonderful picture for us of an opening up of the priesthood to all believers, Jesus came not only to purify the literal sons of Levi, but also the spiritual sons of Levi from every nation. The connection to Jeremiah's prophecy, on the other hand, is more sobering. Jesus' reference to the robber's den is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 7. If you read it there, you'll find that the whole chapter is a condemnation of the people of Israel. This is what Jeremiah says in part. Will you, Israel, offer sacrifices to Baal? and walk after other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? God's message to Jeremiah is that the people are robbers because they are robbing God by not giving him the worship that only he deserves. So Jesus' comparison of the state of the temple in his day to the robber's den of Jeremiah's day was the severest of indictments. Jesus' concern is not cheating temple vendors, taking advantage of their customers. No, he's connecting the people of his day with the people of Jeremiah's day, people who have forsaken the one true God and gone after idols. And the promise from God to the people in Jeremiah's day was this. My wrath will be poured out on this place, and it will burn and not be quenched. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky. The land will become a ruin. 
The takeaway message here, those who forsake the one true God are dead. This was true in Jeremiah's time. It was true in Jesus' time, and it's true in our time. Those who are in sin are under the wrath of God, and those who are under the wrath of God are dead. The only way of escape is if God gives new life, if God revives. This brings us to the second truth that Jesus is teaching, that purifying the priesthood would require revival. The purification of the physical temple was just a glimmer of a hint of the revival that Jesus brings. The revival that Jesus brings is a purification of a spiritual temple. The scriptures teach us that God doesn't live in temples built by man. God lives in those who trust him and that every believer is a temple. Jesus didn't come just to purify some building. Jesus came to purify people, to make hearts holy so that God could take up residence in them. Jesus came to make every believer a priest, able to worship the Lord in righteousness. And that conversion of the person is a miraculous revival that only Jesus can work. He begins it by breathing spiritual life into dead hearts, and he continues it throughout the life of the believer, progressively reforming and transforming us and remaking us in his image. Scripture also teaches that each believer, each little temple in which God dwells, is being built together into a dwelling of God. Jesus didn't come to purify some building. Jesus came to build this temple, his church. Each believer, Peter writes, is a holy, little, living stone. And together we are a spiritual household for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's house cannot be built out of dead stones. God's house cannot be built out of impure stones. God's house needs to be built of living, holy stones, people who are spiritually alive and clothed in the holiness of Jesus. The only way to make these kind of stones is for Jesus to work revival in individual hearts. So first, we've seen Jesus was on a mission to purify a priesthood from all nations for the worship of God. Second, purifying the priesthood required revival. And finally, that revival would require Jesus laying down his life. It turns out Jesus cleansed the temple at least twice in his ministry. The day after his triumphal entry was the last time he did it. The first time was at the beginning of his ministry, and it was recorded in John. At that time, the religious leaders questioned him, and they said, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing this, for cleansing the temple? Jesus' answer is odd. Destroy this temple, he said. And in three days, I will raise it up. John tells us that Jesus was not speaking about the literal temple building, but that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus here is making a prophetic statement about his death and his resurrection. And sure enough, the religious leaders did destroy him, and in three days, he did rise back to life. Jesus purified the temple, I think it's clear, so that they would question his authority, so that he could point them and us toward the cross. I think John's comment in John chapter 2, verse 17, best sums up Jesus' teaching. There John writes that the disciples, having seen Jesus purify the temple, remembered the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quotation from Psalm 69, a psalm where David is desperately calling out to God to save him. Because of his zeal, David says, 
his fervor for God's house, David is, is telling God, people have turned against me and they're persecuting me. This here in the Psalms is, is another picture of Jesus. Jesus came because he was zealous for God's house. He was zealous to build God a house to purify, as we've said, a priesthood that would become God's temple. And many would turn against him as he pursued that mission and they would destroy him. Jesus' mission, his zeal for his father's house, ultimately required Jesus laying down his life on the cross. It would quite literally, physically consume him. Ultimately, that is what Jesus purified the temple to teach us, that zeal for his father's house would consume him. So tonight, as we commemorate Jesus' death, let us be amazed at Jesus' teaching. Let us believe the scripture, as John says the disciples did. Let us believe the scripture and the words which Jesus spoke. Let's remember that we don't have to wait until Resurrection Sunday to see God's plan and his power to work revival in our hearts and our minds. And even as we mourn over our sin tonight and remember the horror that Jesus faced to free us from it, Let's also remember the revival, the new life, the abundant life for which Jesus gave up himself so that we might receive. And let's worship him with all thanksgiving and with great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it just uh, amazes us to look down through scripture, even as Brother Ralph shared from Genesis, and we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Psalms the testimony to what your plan was. And Father, it's uh, hard for us, an impatient people who have, I want instant gratification, Father, to see how you work down through the ages. But we thank you that you did do that, that you did have patience with man so that we would have life and that you would come and, and give us new life, Lord. We just give you all the praise and all the glory for your purifying power that's at work even today in us. And we pray for those here who may not know that power, Lord, that you would give them the new birth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this time, I'll invite everyone to stand and join us as we continue worshiping this evening. Thank you. 
You may be seated. We've been reminded uh, tonight about God demonstrating his love for us in seeing his son given on the cross. So we see the grace and mercy of God. We see the power of God to bring revival and to impart new life and change us. And so this is a symbolic meal that we have before us tonight. It was done in the context of a Passover meal that Jesus sort of redirected it to help him understand that it was all looking forward so that he would be the fulfillment of that. And he was the one who was the sacrificial lamb offering himself uh, for those of us who need a sacrifice in order to be forgiven and stand before a holy God. So Paul gave instruction to the church there and, and uh, he said, uh, I received uh, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're here making a proclamation, a statement about what it is that we are relying on, what it is that we are trust, who we are trusting in, in order to have this forgiveness, in order to have this new life, in order to have um, the assurance that God loves us, is that we have come and we've come on his terms. We've come admitting that we are sinners. We've come admitting that we are in need of a savior. We've come admitting that we cannot save ourselves. And so we come to partake of the bread, reminding that Jesus, his body was broken for you. And so the partaking of the bread is to say, yes, I, he died for me, and that is what I count on for my spiritual life, that I might know that I am no longer dead in my sins, but alive in Christ because of what Christ did for me. And then we're going to pass the cup in just a little while, reminding us that he sealed the covenant, the promise that says that God will truly cleanse us and forgive us of our sins to all those who come in faith in Christ, and who truly repent of their sins. So if that's not true of you tonight, you're not really, um, have never come to Christ, we urge you to come tonight. Make this the night that you receive Christ and you place your faith and trust in him. Uh, but if you're not prepared to do that and you never have taken that step in your life, then we urge you just to pass this on by as it is a symbolic meal signifying that that is what you have done. Uh, at this time, I'm going to ask uh, Nick if he'd offer a word of thanks before we share the bread together. Son, we thank you and praise you that he took on flesh for us. Lord, even, even before his body was broken, he was humble and became uh, obedient. We also remember that he became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And we are humble by that remembrance of what he did for us on our behalf. We are just so thankful that he was crushed for our liberties and that uh, by his stripes we were healed. We just give you all praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Carl Field would offer a word of thanks as we think about the wonders of Christ's shed blood given for us that we might be forgiven, cleansed, and made new. Dear Father, we come before you in remembrance of your Son dying on the cross for our place and to the world, it's foolishness. But we realize that the debt, you're a holy God, and the debt had to be paid. And we're eternally grateful, and we look forward to meeting you in heaven and celebrating with you and the saints forever. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.
We can say that the cross is not just some mystical experience. It's something that we remember. It happened in space and time and history. It is something that God did. He said, I love you enough to give you my son. He sealed the covenant in his blood. Jesus said, take this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for the indescribable gift of his son. Uh, Now let's uh, conclude our service. We'll sing the third stanza of that hymn we sang before. And uh, let's celebrate the wonders of what Christ has done. He showed us the love of God. He showed us the grace and mercy of God. He showed us the reviving power of God. Let's stay and sing. you don't leave tonight with all sorts of doubts, wondering if God loves you. We're just saying, this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Uh, let me just thank uh, all those who've joined us tonight. We want to thank those who've helped us with our music tonight. We appreciate so much your ministry. Thank you to the Starks for their ministry as well, and to Stephen. And also, I just want to, is it Stephen? Yeah, Stephen, okay. And um, also, just want to uh, make you aware, this is uh, the beginning of a very full and exciting weekend for us, uh, particularly focusing on Sunday. We have a three-part celebration, so be sure to join us for any or all of it, uh, starting at 7.30 at the historic church building down on Middle Country Road. It is unheated. It's going to be probably in the low 40s, maybe, overnight, even if in the 30s. So wrap up and bring your hot bricks and come and join us uh, in that old historic building, but for a great celebration as we think about the wonders of a risen Savior And then we'll have a breakfast following that right here in this building at 8.30. And then at 10.30, our regular uh, Resurrection Day celebration. We urge you to come and join us and invite others to join you as well. Let's close in prayer. Now, Father, we thank you again for the joy it has been to be pointed into your word again, to help us focus our minds upon what it is that you want us to know about yourself to get our focus off of ourselves, to get our focus onto you, and to recognize that there is no way to measure, no way to fathom the greatness, the wonder, 
and the magnitude of your love, of your grace, of your power to bring to life and to save and to rescue sinners like us. So, Lord, we give all glory and praise to you, all boasting we make of you. And the cross, indeed, is what we boast of tonight. Thank you for a wonderful Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, for the joy it is to fill our minds with the wonders of your great love and the hope we have because of your grace. And now we ask your blessing on those, who, uh, those of us who are here tonight. We pray that the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you both now and forevermore. Amen.